hello and I don't know, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome for another episode of Revolutionary Tracks, where we'll be talking about uh, great late uh, Paul Robeson and uh, <laughs> Karthik, how, how, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's raining here in New Jersey. I don't know if it's raining uh, over there, but uh, I had to actually take a short walk before I uh, had to come on. So I'm a little drenched. Thankfully, I had an umbrella. How are you oh, doing? That's, 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 that's good. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's like the whole East Coast is getting is getting hit right now. But besides that, we had a, a pretty, pretty incredible uh, interview that we did with Dr. Gerald Horn um, this morning about uh, Paul Robinson. I mean, that like it was the focus was Paul Robinson, but um, a lot of different, uh, <laughs> a whole lot of different issues, movements, people um, come up in it. Uh, but before we get into the interview itself, we did want to play uh Paul Robeson in front of one of the hearings uh, during the McCarthy era. By unanimous vote, this committee has been instructed to perform this very distasteful task. To whom am I talking? You're speaking to the chairman of the committee. Mr. Walter? Yes. The Pennsylvania Walter? That is right. Representative of the steel workers? That is right. And the coal mining workers? That is right. Not United States steel by any chance. A great patriot. That is right. You are the author of the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. No, only your kind. Colored people like myself. And you would let in the Teutonic Anglo-Saxon stock. We are trying to make it easier to get rid of your kind, too. You don't want any colored people to come in. Could I be allowed to read from my statement? Will you just tell this committee, please, while under oath, Mr. Robeson, the communist who participated in the preparation of that statement? Oh, please. The reason I'm here today, from the mouth of the State Department itself, is I should not be allowed to travel because I have struggled for the independence of the colonial peoples of Africa. The other reason I'm here today, again, from the State Department, and from the record of the Court of Appeals, is that when I am abroad, I speak out against injustices against the Negro people in this land. That is why I'm here. I'm not being tried for whether I'm a communist. I'm being tried for fighting for the rights of my people, who are still second-class citizens in this country, in this United States of America. My mother was born in your state. And my mother was a Quaker. My ancestors in the time of Washington baked bread for George Washington's troops. When they crossed Delaware, my father was a slave. I stand here struggling for the rights of my people to be full citizens in this country. And they are not. They are not in Mississippi. They are not in Montgomery, Alabama. They are not in Washington. They are nowhere. And that is why I am here today. You want to shut up every Negro who has the courage to stand up and fight for the rights of his people, for the rights of workers. And I have been on many a picket line for the steel workers, too. And that is why I'm here. So, uh, pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Uh, Carly, I don't know if you had anything before we just get into the uh, intro. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just like, really, uh, this is th this is part of an 11 minute uh, YouTube video. You guys can definitely go and check it out, and should definitely go and check it out. Um, this is like 
a person, I mean, we, we hear stories of like how people snitched at the McCarthy hearings, like at the, at the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings. This is a person who not only didn't snitch, but actually gave it back. And it was like, it's, it's exhilarating to listen to him. And of course, like I, we already see the comments uh, that he had like such a, I mean, like I, there's no words to describe his voice, but then like you later see Marcus find the best, uh, I think, analogy <laughs> to describe the voice, uh, which uh, you'll hear very soon. So I guess like we can get to um, introducing, I, I think we should probably introduce Dr. Gerald Horn for those uh, uninitiated, unfamiliar to his work. What do you think? Yeah, good. All right. I mean, um, from from as far as I know, at least, I mean, we don't have a formal introduction that is prepared. But Dr. Gerald Horn is um, a, a historian of uh, significant repute. Uh, he's a professor at uh, the University of Houston, and uh, he was. I it was honestly a, a kind of. He's written such books as uh, Counter Revolution of 1776. He's written a book on Hollywood. Um, and uh, Hollywood activism um, and like in in the 30s and 40s uh, he's written a book uh, about like boxing in the in the United States he's written uh, of course the Paul Robeson uh, biography which is what we're going to be talking about um, but uh, essentially cannot be understated how significant this man's work is and uh, it's just incredible that like he agreed to talk to us in the first place I was half expecting it not to happen it was like a it was like a yeah. shot in the dark. Yeah. If well, we can maybe next, say it. maybe yeah. next, next time we'll be able to get a degree uh, to come on call it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, that's that's the next step. But uh, yeah, actually, you know, incredible story. And I think it's like total of like twenty five books that he's written. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I, here's uh, the first part of the interview. So uh, before we get into the details of uh, Paul Robeson's life, um, could you just give a brief description of who Robeson was and why he uh, was an important figure? And how did, did you approach writing a biography on Robeson as a revolutionary artist? Okay, are you taping? Yes. Paul Robeson was born in central New Jersey in 1898, dies in Philadelphia in 1976, in between, he was a stellar athlete at Rutgers University in U.S. football, in baseball, in track and field, and in basketball. He was a graduate of Columbia University Law School and was en route to becoming a well-compensated U.S. black lawyer when it is discovered not least by his spouse, Eslanda Robeson, that he has a marvelous singing voice, which diverts him into performance, which further diverts him into spending years of exile in London in the 1920s and the 1930s, where he also stars in films and also becomes an actor of sorts and also a concert singer. Now, uh, what happens is that the 1930s, as you well know, was the decade of the rise of fascism, not least in Berlin. And Robeson had a pre-existing relationship with William L. Patterson, who I've also written about, another black lawyer uh, who had roots in the Caribbean and in California. And it was Patterson who led the charge to free the Scottsboro Nine, 
black prisoners in Scottsboro, Alabama, circa 1931, arrested on false charges of molestation of two Euro-American women and were headed for the death penalty before Patterson's uh, International Labor Defense and Organization affiliated uh, with the U.S. Communist Party, which in turn is affiliated with Moscow and the Soviet Union, uh, they devise a global campaign that ultimately frees the Scottsboro Nine. And uh, it is Patterson who begins to influence Robeson politically. Uh, Robeson also had developed a talent for languages. It's suspected that he may have read, spoke, or understood about two dozen languages, including Russian, uh, where he visited early on. And because of peculiarities of Russian history that I can go into, if you're interested, he felt much more comfortable uh, in the then Soviet Union than he did at home. In fact, he decided to educate his son, Paul Robeson Jr., uh, in the former Soviet Union. Now, it is possible that uh, Robeson would have stayed on in exile in London, uh, but for the eruption of conflict on the continent, the Spanish Civil War, the mid-1930s, where Robeson went to perform for the Spanish Republican forces under siege by the right wing led by Francisco Franco, supported by the fascists. But what happens is that uh, it appears by September 1939 that the lapping flames of war would reach London, and uh, he and his spouse decided that the better part of wisdom was to return across the Atlantic to relative safety. Uh, by that point, the United States was about to enter World War II on the side of Moscow and on the side of London as well. And so Robeson fit into that political context quite easily. But alas, uh, with the conclusion of World War II, you see that the United States begins to turn sharply to the right uh, there is the launching of the Red Scare at home, the Cold War abroad. Robeson is seen as a central figure in both because of his pre-existing ties to the Communist Party of the United States. And, of course, that leads to his income uh, plummeting from the six figures to the low four figures, his passport being snatched so he could not go abroad to make a living, also attempts on his life as well, a tendency that uh, was heightened circa 1950-1951, when along with Patterson, the aforementioned Patterson, the organization that Patterson leads, then called the Civil Rights Congress, files a petition at the United Nations charging the United States with genocide against black people, it creates a worldwide uproar, not least since the United States is a preening as the paragon of human rights virtue, and now it's being charged with genocide. Uh, this leads to a jail term for Patterson, uh, 
further marginalizing and isolating uh, Robeson, but it also helps to contribute to a worldwide campaign, interestingly enough, oftentimes spearheaded by New Delhi. And uh, by the late 1950s, Robeson's passport is returned. He is able to travel. He probably overdoes it by using London as a base, traveling into Eastern Europe, traveling down under to Australia. And then by about 1965 or so, his spouse dies, who was not only his spouse, but his manager. He decides to return to his sister's home in West Philadelphia, a kind of internal exile, if you like, and uh, spends quiet years until he passes away in January 1976. Now, with regard to how I approach this project, um, fortunately, there's a Robeson archive at Howard University. Writing a biography of a figure like Robeson uh, fit nicely with previous biographies I've written of other left-leaning figures, both black and non-black. And, of course, I've written about the film industry after the Robeson book, uh, written about uh, jazz and boxing. So uh, confronting the entertainment industry was nothing new for me. Yeah, it was like it's it's it was incredible how uh, Dr. Horn was able to kind of remember uh, a lot of the basically it's many of our que- questions. Yes, as you'll see, um, were one part, two part, three part questions, and uh, it's pretty incredible how Dr. Horn remembered every single question. And like, uh, what was even cooler is uh, how many asides he went on, and like uh, kind of illuminating little snippets he uh, dropped a drop by here and there um and uh yeah i think i think like we'll we'll just go ahead and uh, marcus you have some thoughts and we can play the next one after um well yeah no i think this, i mean this is obviously just a, a good you know intro into who you know uh paul Robeson was but i mean yeah i agree with your you know assessment there of like and this is why it's great to be able to just have a conversation with someone like you know dr horn um because even in a simple question of who who's this guy and why is he important, you know, you get a very <laughs> nuanced and um, in-depth uh, answer, you know, that alludes to so much more that was going on. Um, but, uh, and I did want to let people know, so, you know, we've got a, uh, a few different parts. Um, so we'll just get into uh, number two, if... If I can find it, there it is. Um, I, I like your claim that uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X filled the vacuum Robeson left behind, which you attribute to Robeson's fight for a socialist commonwealth, unlike his successors, more localized struggles. Can you talk about how he envisioned this commonwealth to be and why this struggle was not inherited by those who came after him? Well, the the latter point is easy to answer because, as noted, there was a red scare. Uh, Why was there a red scare? Well, there was a red scare to rout any who were concerned about uh, changing the social system that was capitalism and also redistributing the wealth, not in the usual U.S. fashion from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, 
I've argued uh, elsewhere that the United States is very sensitive to questions of redistribution of the wealth because one of the most significant redistributions of wealth in world history takes place circa 1865 and shortly thereafter when billions of dollars in property in the bodies of enslaved Africans were expropriated by the United States government by without compensation, uh, plunging a number of slave-owning families into poverty and also into anger, which gives rise to terrorism, the Ku Klux Klan, etc. Et I think on, on a wider scale, and this is something I've been arguing in a number of venues, I think there has been a real underestimation, believe it or not, of the strength of the right wing in the United States. I mean, how could that be when you're talking about a country based upon enslavement of Africans, genocide against Native Americans, wartime escapades abroad in Indochina, in trying to overthrow the Cuban Revolution, the 19th century, trying to overthrow the Haitian Revolution, trying to overthrow the government in Guatemala and Iran in the 1950s, overthrowing the government of Grenada in 1983. I mean, I could go on. And yet, by a goodly number of nationals of the United States, including those who consider themselves to be radical, <laughs> I still, it's still hard to believe, they consider this to be a revolutionary country somehow, although somehow it pursues counter-revolutionary aims. And so... Uh, it was always going to be an uphill climb to try to establish uh, the so-called socialist commonwealth in the United States of America. <clears throat> if I were to make a, a critique of uh, Robeson and some of his comrades, I'm not even sure if they grasp that particular point. For example, R Robeson uh, was always quick to point out that his ancestors uh, fought the British in the 18th century to ensure that the United States would be free from London's administration, uh, even though we now know that that was not necessarily the majority position amongst uh, the black population, which by and large sided with London. They did not engage in class collaboration, joining hands with slaveholders like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison in order that their goals could be effectuated, which, of course, led to an enhancement and increase of the African slave trade, further genocide against Native Americans. And in politics, you have to make a political estimate of the forces on the battlefield, just like in war. Politics is really just another form of war, it's sometimes not necessarily involving weapons. You have to make an estimate of the forces on the battlefield. And Robeson and some of his comrades, I think, uh, imputed a kind of class struggle ethos to many that could be dubbed as part of the working class of the settler class. Whereas we now know, I hope, that settler colonialism, which was the model planted in North America once London invaded this continent in the late 16th century and began to seize the land from the indigenous population 
that this was a multi-class project. It was not just the 1%. There were <laughs> working class people, middle class. It was like January 6, 2021, which was another multi-class project. I mean, it wasn't just working class people. It wasn't just middle class people. It was also part of the 1% as well. And one of the things I found about the United States, maybe it's, it's true outside the United States too, but certainly in this country, I've noticed that people have a theory of the case. And if inconvenient facts intervene that may conflict with their theory of the case or contradict their theory of the case, they ignore the inconvenient facts and motor on with their theory of the case. I mean, it, it, I notice that almost on a daily basis in communicating with people. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's quite something. Um, I mean, just, just as a side note, I was just um, in an exchange with this Dutch guy about uh, you know, the, the origins of capitalism, settler colonialism, slavery, you know, the usual apocalyptic horrors. And he was trying to convince me that the Netherlands somehow was ahead of the British. Now, of course, there are more people speaking English today than speaking Dutch. So that should give you a tip off that something might be wrong with that theory. And I said, well, sure. I mean, if you look, I, mean, I wrote a, you know, this is like, I was beginning to think maybe it's because I'm black and they don't think black people know anything. But in my 16th century book, I'd written about the Dutch and, and, and their struggles with the Spanish in the 16th century and how, and this is a, a, a phrase that people should pay attention to, how London was able, was willing to fight the Spanish to the last Dutchman in order to accomplish their goals. And how looking from the point of view of 1620, you could have easily surmised that in a few centuries, the Dutch Empire would be where the British Empire wound up. But alas, you don't judge a marathon by who's leading at the two mile mark, obviously. And then with regard to apartheid, which I've also written about, an 800 page book about Southern Africa. One of the points I make in that book is that the Afrikaners, who are the lineal descendants of the Dutch settlers, one of the reasons that they had to give up rule, one of the many reasons, in fact, was that they were more Dutch chauvinists than pan-Europeanists. P part of the, quote, genius, unquote, of <laughs> both uh, London and its revolting spawn here in North America, so they were pan-Europeanists, which feeds into white supremacy, that is to say. Then they were, they were willing to incorporate uh, other Europeans into their project. Uh, for example, the Spanish tended to be religious sectarians. You had to be Catholic. And the Dutch were even narrow. Uh, they, they were rejecting European migrants trying to come to South Africa before 1994 because they weren't Dutch. And so so this guy has a theory of the case. Nothing will deter him. And so that's part of the problem in the United States. And I see it on the left. I see it amongst liberals. Uh, maybe it's a cultural thing, but then again, it, it may be something that's endemic worldwide. And which I think with that one of the one of the more interesting po points that's not necessarily focusing on Robeson, but his framing of, uh, <laughs> you know, you, the, the the war for independence, um, and I think 
yeah, it kind of even touched, I think we'll be touching on it later as well of, yeah, just the framing of what, you know, 1776 actually was, um, and then how that, and how to look at, uh, American history in that lens. I think like next, uh, Marcus has a pretty cool question. That's one of the most defining aspects of, uh, Paul Robeson, which is that like today you kind of find, uh, you know, the likes of Pete Buttigieg showing off that like they know three, four languages or whatever, but, uh, and yet like it's not part of their politics. It's just like a kind of little, uh, parlor room trick, parlor trick. Uh, but uh, Paul Robeson actually considers his languages and um, his study of languages as a sort of inquiry into other cultures and how it's actually a practice of solidarity for him. So, uh, Marcus, with a great question. Um, great question. Bad upload. If you can just give me one moment, because it doesn't mm. seem to have loaded up on the soundboard. Oh, okay. So what, are you can... not able to find it or uh, it's just not nah, working? No, nah, like I thought. Um... All right, bear with us for a second. This is like uh, kind of kind of a little strange. Uh, we did expect like a little bit of hiccups. I mean, we, it would have been really cool if uh, it, would, it had been smooth throughout and we would have just like high-fived each other virtually because Mar- Marcus and I still haven't met in person. But uh, yeah, essentially the fact is that we couldn't get, uh, you know, uh, an interview on call in itself. So we just had to do this pre-recorded. Um, and we wanted to make sure that uh, we gave you a really good experience that um, unfortunately is being in- disrupted slightly. Uh, hopefully okay. this is going to work. You got yep, it. Okay. Got it. So, all um, right. Nice. All right. I guess going back into the, uh, Paul Robes is like a early life uh an approach to language seems to almost be like a perfectionist as you, you know, as, a, as you describe it in the biography. Um, and it seems to us it ties his love of diction, but also with like different cultures of the world. Um, so I asked, would it be fair to say that his passions partly drove his radicalization? And could you explain uh, how his expertise in language and music accented Robeson's revolutionary arc? Well, I, I think that he, by way of studying philology, the structure of language, and of course, he had confessed that if life had taken a different direction, he would have been quite comfortable being a philologist at a small college. Part of Robeson's thinking was that he was trying to show the oneness of humanity the commonalities of humanity. And you can probably find this online. He, he would do singing exercises where he would try to show that the underlying structure of, say, so-called Negro spirituals were similar to the underlying structures of other forms of music globally. And likewise, he felt... When I, this seems intuitively correct, that if he could speak to people in their own language, they would be more willing to listen to him, as opposed to speaking to people through a translator, for example. And so uh, I think I recounted the book 
that before going to perform in Oslo, Norway, he began a rapid study of Norwegian so that he could speak to the people in Norwegian and Norwegian language and sing to them in their language. And this is an aid of winning allies to the struggle for socialism, the struggle for black liberation, the anti-colonial struggle, the struggle for the uplift of humanity. And so there was a kind of seamlessness between Robeson's intellectual and artistic and political preoccupations. Uh, They were all linked together. And this was particularly the case because recall that in the 1930s, for example, much of Africa was colonized by European powers. Uh, And of course, in the 1930s, we witnessed the Italian invasion of Ethiopia uh, trying to convert one of the few independent African nations into yet another colony. And this gives rise to one of Robeson's preeminent uh, political journeys, uh, which was organizing the Council on African Affairs, which until driven out of business by the U.S. authorities circa 1956, was the preeminent uh, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial organization in solidarity with African liberation. Now, of course, living in London in the 1930s, uh, Robeson was quite familiar with Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, who at that time, (laughs) like many uh, leaders who become neo-colonialists, he he was uh, part of the left. Uh, Robeson, of course, was familiar with Kwame Nkrumah, the first leader of independent Ghana, surging to power in 1957, overthrown by a U.S.-backed coup in Ghana, West Africa, in early 1966, while he's abroad trying to broker an end to the genocidal U.S. war in Indochina. So, once again, there was a linkage between and amongst Robeson's intellectual, artistic, and political preoccupations. And I, I guess even to, I wonder if like the, to, to double down on the point too, is like the company you keep in that time period where artists and intellectuals, especially black artists and intellectuals were often amongst themselves as a, a social group, you know, that may not exist necessarily in, in, in modern times. Well, elaborate on, on the point you're making. Uh, that that um, in the 1930s, it's like with U.S. apartheid and, and you know, amongst either uh, American black artists and then, and then academics as well, as far as their social groups and everything like that, which, you know, you allude to even that um, uh, Paul Robeson's wife, you know, was <laughs> quite fond of, you know, being in sort of the, those those circles as well. Um, mm-hmm. But that kind of, you know, being in the company of 
people of, of, of some sort of left tradition, uh, just being exposed to those things. And then even, you know, when he travels around coming, at, coming to it from the people's perspective, um, kind of just driving the radicalism. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly at this particular moment in the first eight or nine decades of the 20th century, there was a strong socialist movement worldwide, communist movement worldwide, anti-colonial movement worldwide. And that created an environment where a person like Robeson could not only find a certain compatibility with individuals and countries irrespective of their national origins, but it also drove closer together uh, those in the United States, which, as I've suggested, has been a right-wing anchor of the international community, but with, at least for the longest time, a very potent core of black activists and intellectuals in particular. Uh, I need only point you to W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, a founder of the Pan-African movement, a scholar, novelist, political organizer, uh, booted from the NAACP, an organization he had helped to found, but kicked out in 1948 as they turned to the center and the right, and he refused to do so. He also worked with Robeson in the Council on African Affairs. You mentioned Islanda Robeson, for example. Shirley Graham Du Bois, who I've written a biography about, uh, Du Bois' second wife, artist, intellectual, novelist, playwright, political organizer. Uh, she was organizing branches for the NAACP in the early 1940s when it had its most spectacular rate of growth, going from 40,000 members in 1940 to 400,000 by 1944, a level they barely exceeded and probably fallen below uh, since then. And then they're influencing a number of up-and-coming individuals, some of whom are still in the land of the living. Uh, Harry Belafonte, now 95, oftentimes uh, signals his intellectual and artistic debt to Robeson. You may recall Harry Belafonte, the actor and singer uh, in an impresario, as well as uh, the recently deceased Sidney Poitier, the Oscar-winning actor, also a director. Now, as noted, this was a core of progressive, oftentimes left-leaning, oftentimes socialist-oriented, sometimes communist-oriented, <laughs> intellectuals, artists, activists, uh, the remnants of which are still with us today in 2022. All right. So that's something that we're actually going to try to uh, incorporate soon. Uh, we noticed that a lot of Colin shows uh, don't really have back background music. 
uh, backing tracks going. And like, that was one of the cool features of Twitch that we kind of miss on Colin. And uh, we're figuring out a way to do it. I don't think there's intuitively a way to do it at the moment. Uh, thankfully, we were able to bring that up uh, in um, in this recorded interview, uh, thankfully. And uh, we'll also additionally, of course, like because this being a music show, uh, we will be able to play uh, music tracks that uh, we wanted to show you, uh, especially as pertaining to some of the things that uh, we Marcus had asked, which is that Paul Robeson is a person who learned the language in order to speak to the people who spoke the language. And one of the most significant things about uh, him especially is that he sung uh, many revolutionary uh, movements, anthems, um, and uh, we want to play you uh, Paul Robeson singing the Chinese uh, national anthem in both Chinese as well as an English version. Um, oh, I feel like I might have to load this one again too. Oh yeah, it's not playing. Um, not the testimony there. Oh, no, what happened with this shit? <clears throat> um. Oh no! I'll just play the fourth. You know, we'll just go into the next question, and I'll. I'll All right. Try to okay. The stuff that's missing. We'll um, figure it out. Yeah. Uh, the encounter with uh, African diaspora elsewhere other than the U.S. seems to have been crucial to the radicalization not only of Robeson but other revolutionaries who came after him. Can you speak more generally to this process as well as how specifically it happened with Robeson as he traveled and performed, and also accounting uh, for his. Uh, the, the closeness of his connection with uh, the Soviet Union, where uh, around the time of Sergei Eisenstein, uh, he actually performed in a movie uh, that was about the Haitian Revolution. Um, and again, as you as you touched on it earlier, like he made friends with uh, future nationalist leaders such as Nkrumah, Kenyatta, and even Nehru uh, when he was in London. So, mm-hmm. can you like speak to how these experiences actually shaped uh, the radicalization of uh, Paul Robeson? Well, sure. I mean, as suggested, there was a certain kind of commonality of interest uh, between and amongst the colonized and those subjected to U.S. apartheid or even South African apartheid, for example. In my book on Southern Africa, I talk about Nelson Mandela's uh, (laughs) friendliness towards Robeson, although I don't think that they ever met, but he oftentimes expressed his deep and profound respect for Robeson and as I point out in the book and others others have too uh, for a a goodly number of years Nelson Mandela was a leading member of the South African Communist Party which then means that he and Robeson shared certain political uh, affinities as well and I think that for those who were struggling against uh, the obnoxiousness and noxiousness of U.S. apartheid, South African apartheid, Jim Crow colonialism, that it was an uphill climb. And they were highly appreciative of the support rendered and lent by the then socialist camp which is oftentimes a very difficult point for folks in the United States to accept, given how they've been brainwashed. Of course, few acknowledge being brainwashed. 
even as the country is skidding into a certain kind of unique fascism. Although, supposedly, this is this great democratic experiment on the one hand, on the other hand, it's skidding into fascism. Now, that doesn't seem to add up to me. It's such a great democratic experiment. How does it wind up skidding towards fascism? Uh, how does it uh, wind up with enhanced patriarchy, as suggested by the impending uh, overthrow of uh, women's reproductive freedom, for example? So, Robeson was part and parcel of this domestic movement and this international movement. The domestic movement oftentimes having overlapping connections with the international movement. For example, one of Robeson's comrades domestically was Ferdinand Smith, who was born in Jamaica, for example, who migrates to the United States, becomes a founder and leader of one of the most powerful trade unions in the United States, the National Maritime Union, seafarers, merchant seamen, as they're sometimes called, uh, who have uh, control to a degree over both imports and exports, arriving at ports from Seattle to San Diego and from Maine to the southern tip of Florida, for example, not to mention along the Gulf Coast, New Orleans, uh, Etc. Galveston. And uh, of course, Ferdinand Smith ultimately uh, was deported. Uh, likewise, uh, Robeson was quite close domestically in the United States to Claudia Jones, whose roots were in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, but she becomes a migrant, comes to the United States, becomes a leader of the U.S. Communist Party. She too is deported. I should have mentioned that Ferdinand Smith was deported in the early 1950s back to his native Jamaica, where he becomes a leader of the independence movement, uh, culminating in independence in Jamaica in 1962. Uh, Claudia Jones chose to return to London after being deported, where she becomes the leader of the black British community, uh, helping to found the West Indian Gazette, a leading chronicler of activity and that proliferating community uh, in London in particular in the 1950s and early 1960s. So, as noted, there was an overlap between the domestic and the global, with Robeson in many ways at the center, uh, because he was considered to be the tallest tree in our forest, uh, he, at least before the Red Scare. Uh, he was a uh, fertile source for funds, which progressive movements oftentimes are in search of and in need of in terms of don donating his talents for concerts, for example, donating his income. He was starring in Hollywood movies as late as, the, as 1940 before he decided to give up that particular occupation because he found it difficult to find roles that were not insulting and demeaning uh, to black people. But in any case, it was emblematic of his relative affluence, which then, as I said, allows him to uh, fund many different organizations, including his own uh, Council on African Affairs. Um, and that, uh, 
obviously goes into a lot more history, like uh, Paul Robeson's connections. But also, you know, I think it's like important of like the the network, you know, the the like legitimate international network of you know socialists and communists, and you know, in an established way, right, in a politically legitimate way. Um, but so even like yeah, interesting of like having that type of international community, um, even at like the height of like Jim Crow apartheid within the United States. Um, it's pretty fascinating. I think. Yeah. Did you get a chance to get the track loaded in the meanwhile? We could, we could play it. I I did. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's just, it's just really wild to hear him, uh, sing in, uh, Chinese, especially because that's not a language that you usually see, uh, someone from the West really attempt. It's yeah. usually European languages and stuff. Which and that's uh, something that I think is um, was was is is pretty incredible about Robeson was this dedication to like that perfection, you know. Um, and there's, there's quoted saying he's like pretty proud of the fact that he can sing a song and and people from that country think he's a native speaker. Um, mm. But uh, let's take a listen. This is a song born in the struggle of the brave Chinese people. It begins, Chi Lai, arise, you who refuse to be bond slave, and ends, Chen Jing, march on. Chi Lai, who you want so nul di ran man, ba woman di xie rao zu chong woman sing di chang chong. visit those places it was actually you know i guess a, a way of like an intimate connection with the, with the people uh as he was visiting of, of actually being able to sing their anthems um <laughs> in good diction right uh 
you know, like it's not like going down to Mexico and like me, me Lamo S Marcus, you know, like it's uh, he actually he re- in, 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 uh, Dr. Horn explicitly, you know, like takes the time to drill it down in the book of how much time Paul spent perfecting language. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the things that I think uh, now Marcus is uh, basically going to ask about is the is the extent to which he transformed as an artist. Um, a lot of um, his performances, early performances, especially, and I mean, you can imagine the kind of parts that they gave him in movies and Broadway plays and everything. He had a booming voice, so they gave him parts, but then they were never, uh, you know, the kind of respectable parts that you would uh, expect. And there were like a lot of problematic things that he. Um, had to navigate with playing and then eventually he had to um, kind of deal with a lot of backlash uh, for that and then how he you know sort of evolved as a as a performer and, a, and as a and an activist and an organizer through these performances so uh, and this is number four yeah i think it'll be number five i feel like this thing changes up and um, to the point of uh, some of the, the, the movies and roles that uh, Robeson took, um, it kind of, re- yeah, like you mentioned, resulted in a kind of a re- reinforcement of racist stereotypes. Um, and uh, as you documented, he was admonished by, you know, multiple members within the black community. Um, can you go into like how some of these career mistakes kind of ended up resonating with Robeson and inform kind of his radical defiance later on um, in his life. Well, if you can still find online uh, some of the movie, Sanders of the Rivers, for example, which is really a, a slap in the face to colonized Africa. On the other hand, his movie, I think it was about 1940, in, filmed in Wales, with well, Welsh coal miners, uh, still resonates. So there's a sort of up and down with regard to his roles as an actor. On the other hand, his Othello, speaking of Shakespeare's tragedy, his depiction of Othello is considered to be one of the leading depictions of all time. And obviously that role with regard to this, quote, more, unquote, M-O-O-R, uh, a North African uh, who does the state some service, which, of course, Robeson does by <clears throat> helping to rally black Americans to the anti-fascist cause in the early 1940s. And many of them uh, were not keen to do so. I wrote a book, Facing the Rising Sun, about the widespread pro-Tokyo sentiment amongst black Americans. Not only black Americans, but in India, too. Uh, you may be familiar with Subhash Chandra Bose, a right. hero of India, uh, who was certainly pro-Tokyo, uh, which is the flip side of being anti-London or anti-British colonialism. And so Robeson had an uphill climb in terms of trying to win black Americans to the anti-fascist cause because Tokyo had been cultivating the black community 
for decades, uh, ever since its rise to prominence post-1853 with the U.S. ships sailing into Japan, uh, threatening to impose a kind of colonialism on Japan that Hong Kong uh, had suffered about a decade earlier. And so that role of Othello really resonates with regard to Robeson, although he says that he felt more comfortable doing Othello in London than in New York, where it also did quite well at the box office, because in New York, when he, shall we say, embraces Desdemona, the woman of European descent, or white, as they say in the United States, uh, he felt that somebody might charge from the audience and, and assault him, you know, like what happened to Dave Chappelle the other day in Hollywood. And so um, uh, this does not, of course, uh, restrain him in terms of uh, taking on that role. And in fact, it also illustrates some of his political proclivities because in terms of being betrayed, Betrayal is a major theme, as you recall. In Othello, he he also revealed and exposed some of his devices as as an actor. Because he said in order to generate the rage and the disappointment and the anger and the fury with regard to playing that role of Othello, he imagined being betrayed Ben Davis Jr., who I haven't mentioned to this point, who was another black leader of the Communist Party, another black lawyer, graduate of Harvard Law School, akin to William Mel Patterson, who I have mentioned. And so he says that that imagining helped him to develop the kind of fury that he needed to communicate to an audience, for example. So once again, you see it in an overlapping between his art and his politics, uh, which in a real sense was an emblem uh, for Robeson. I should also talk about his singing. And there too, you see an evolution. Uh, If you look at his earlier renditions of his signature tune, Old Man River, for example, uh, he changes some of the lyrics uh, of Old Man River to give it a more humanistic rendering and reading and interpretation, a less offensive and demeaning interpretation. Uh, Robeson, his politics notwithstanding, was considered a peer of other celebrities, black celebrities at least of that era. I'm thinking of Joe Lewis, the uh, boxer, for example, He did the tune King Joe with Count Basie's orchestra. Uh, And of course, Joe Lewis as well, as I say in my book on boxing, was part of the the broad left for the longest period of time uh, before the Red Scare, uh, which led to a routing of that political tendency uh, from which the United States has hardly recovered to this very day. So... These are just some of my reflections with regard to Robeson's uh, politics 
and his artistic commitments. We're uh, we're gonna play you two of the the changed the the first version and the changed version of Old Man River that uh, Dr. Horn is talking about, uh, and you'll be able to see the difference. Uh, see if you can spot the difference. want to say yeah like how powerful his voice is and i get like goosebumps which is you know like been continuously as as we've been preparing for this um but i also do find it interesting that like uh robeson's kind of describing a joker moment in the uh more revolutionary version um when he says i i I keep him laughing uh to keep him crying Robeson Joker fight is just like the next level. Um, <laughs> It'd be unstoppable. Yeah, I think I think we can go on to the next question directly because I feel like it's gonna explain itself. That's got a long its explanation in, in itself. Not that the UK is like a revolutionary haven or anything, uh, but even in Counter Revolution of 1776, you portray the US as more counter revolutionary than the UK, which is a trend oh. that continues all the way up to the, the McCarthy era when. Many um, Americans were exiled or self-exiled to the UK and found refuge there. How is it that the monarchy with such restrictive libel laws more conducive to revolutionary activity than the land of the First Amendment? I think uh, another way to pose that question is to ask how and why it was the United States was a right-wing anchor. In in many ways, uh, London was more in the North Atlantic mainstream than the United States. I mean, look at Canada, for example. I mean, Canada, the neighbor to the north, today uh, has the single-payer health care system, which the United States can only aspire towards. We have the pay-or-die system with regard to health care. It has the left-leaning political party with influence in the provinces like British Columbia and in Parliament in Ottawa, speaking of the NDP, the New Democratic Party, uh, led by a man of South Asian descent, by the way, a a Sikh, S-I-K-H, by the way. And they've just negotiated a plan towards moving to single-payer dental care, which 
is unimaginable right now in the United States of America. Now, this is supposed to be a revolutionary country. Canada, you, you have a social science experiment whereby Canada did not revolt against British rule. The United States did, supposedly had this revolution. Canada supposedly did not, yet Canada is, is, is more progressive than the United States. As I said, you know, this is obvious, but as I said, people in the United States, they don't, they have a theory of the case. They stick to the theory of the case and sort of sweep aside or ignore inconvenient facts. And certainly, as suggested, uh, London was no paragon of virtue when it comes to politics. But I I was pointing this out the other day that uh, as a younger revolutionary myself, uh, I was quite keen to read the works of British revolutionaries, almost as much, if not more so, than those in the United States. I'm thinking of Rajani Palm Dutt, D-U-T-T. I'm thinking of uh, Jack Wattis, W-O-D-D-I-S. I'm thinking of Morris Cornforth, his trilogy, which I oftentimes, even today, recommend to students, uh, Dialectical Materialism, Historical Materialism, The Theory of Knowledge. And once again, I think the question should be reframed as to how and why it was that London was more in the mainstream of capitalist sentiment ideologically than the United States, which is sort of the right wing anchor. And I think the par- part of the explanation rests in my 1776 book where I compare 1776 to other settler revolts, such as Algeria in the 1950s which, of course, has given birth and given rise to Eric Zemmour, the neo-fascist candidate for president in France in the last last electoral cycle, Uh, or the settlers' revolt in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, uh, October 1965. Settlers' revolts are very problematic. As a matter of fact, there's a scholar who I want to embarrass by mentioning her name, who did an entire edited volume on settler colonialism. The scholars based in the United States, but did not mention her homeland as an exemplar of settler colonialism. I mean, she talked about Southern Africa, for example, North Africa, East Africa. What about North America? I mean, at a certain point, you had these people who came from Europe and planted themselves, expropriated the indigenous shackled Africans. I mean, isn't that settler colonialism? But as I said, people oftentimes wind up paying a heavy price when they ignore reality. The only problem or a problem that I see is that I happen to be on this ship of fools that's headed towards an iceberg. And uh, it's not going to be pleasant, uh, least of all for a person like myself. Okay. Yeah, I guess what's the bird saying? (laughs) Uh, it's calling out to Winston. Oh, to come and eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we could we could play the we could play the next one. I feel please. like we're kind of on a flow here. Yeah, yeah. I, I just do want to like. I, I think it's worth hammering home. You know that point of, you know what's described as you know like the American Revolution being reframed. You know, in in in, in a, a settler revolt and. And and how that, you know, then allows us to like yeah rethink the the the, the historical trend of the United States is is, is pretty important. Um, 
But uh, yeah, moving on to the next section. Oh, jeez. One second. This should be seven. Okay. I don't know what's happening. This thing's a little glitchy at the moment. Like, it keeps showing them, and then they disappear. All right, here we go. Yeah, this is this is infuriating right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> like it's it, no, that's fine. Every time I try and click on it, it just like disappears, and I'm not sure what the issue is. Um, do you, do you have to re-upload or something? Yeah, I'll, I'll try that. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. Maurice Comfort's historical materialism. Nice. Yeah, tech issues kind of make it uh, kind of buzzkill. Uh, I wish that it wasn't as glaring a problem. Uh, but then again, if we had a crew of people working on this and we were just sitting and talking, that'd be a whole other story. But, like, you know, we're doing this, just the two of us, as the song goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now it's saying there's an error. Yeah, I don't know. It's the okay, so that one works. <laughs> All right, got it. Uh, just to bring it back to uh, Mr. <laughs> and Ms. Robeson uh, for for a bit, uh, you portray them as practically royalty, especially with with real direct ties to uh, the British crown. Um, and I, I mean, I couldn't help but draw the parallel to Barack and Michelle Obama outside of the White House connection. Uh, what that serves best to do in your book, uh, in, in the Paul Robeson book, is to set up their fall from that royal status once Robeson starts more explicitly uh, getting associated with uh, revolutionary organizing. Can you can you describe that undoing? Well, what's interesting is that I remember when I was much younger, I read this memoir um, by Elizabeth of Toro. I think that was her name. Uh, she is, had roots in today's Uganda. And in the memoir, she talks about her own closeness to royalty. And I think that with regard in Europe, I should say. And then, of course, in my Japan book, I talk about how in the 1930s, there was a plan afloat to have a merger of the royal families of Ethiopia and Japan. And I think that in order to unravel this apparent seeming conundrum, we would be wise to see this negrophobia, this anti-black racism as a particular aspect of the rise of capitalism and settler colonialism uh, post-1492, post-1500. And as we know, royalty precedes 1492 and post-1500. And we also know that uh, as a result of the so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688 in London, that the wings of the monarch were clipped by the rising merchant class. Uh, to that point, the African slave trade was under the thumb of the monarch, by dint of the Royal African Company, which is one of the reasons why 
William and Kate have received such an an unpleasant welcome uh, in Jamaica most recently because folks know this history. But of course, what happens is that the merchants basically clip the wings of the monarch, uh, elbow them aside and take over the African slave trade, which then explodes. And then, then of course, the the monarch is still uh, enthroned, but is not as powerful politically as it had been before 1688. And of course, many of our left-wing friends uh, celebrate uh, that as a step forward for humanity. Uh, I guess they they didn't notice that that development led to an explosion of the African slave trade. And so this is a hell of a step forward for humanity when millions and millions of people die and become enslaved as a result of a so-called revolution. I mean, another revolution like this and we'll be totally undone, as they say. So I think that once again, we need a deeper analysis uh, of the roots of racism and white supremacy. We need to tie it to capitalism and settler colonialism. And when that is done, we'll better understand the unique journey of one of Paul L. Robeson. And uh, I should also say there was another point that was rattling around in my head before. Well, I'll probably think of it later. Um, uh, I was I was gonna sorry uh, I was just gonna like uh, can you uh, talk about the how he came down from the from the position like the the particularities of uh, once he started you know uh, becoming more uh, of an involved revolutionary organizer um, he kind of comes down from this position of like being in the glitterati so to say like the the the, <laughs> the top uh, a list celebrity status that he had um, and then like it sto- slowly starts going from his going away from his grip mm-hmm. well sure i mean first of all as you know this point of, as part of u.s and to a degree british culture uh, actors in particular uh, have a, a certain cachet for example and it's something that the right wing is going to have to deal with it's something they've been dealing with for the last uh, 75 years because you know, I did these two books on Hollywood and one of the points that I made, particularly in the first one, A Class Struggle in Hollywood, is that the right wing, as the Red Scare was being launched, thought they had a problem because so many of, of the de facto royalty, that is to say the actors, the Hollywood celebrities, were leaning to the left. And at the same time, we're making um, fabulous incomes, uh, living well (laughs) in in the Hollywood Hills and Bel Air, Brentwood, Homeby Hills, Hancock Park, the other neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So they had a real problem. And so there was a lot of cogitation about how and why it was that so many of these celebrities with uh, fabulous incomes were donating to the left and what to do about it. So this is the environment that Robeson is emerging from in the sense that he he was an actor. Uh, He was on the silver screen, uh, for example. And even after he dropped acting, he still had a sizable income. And as a result of that class status, uh, that gave him entree 
into elevated circles. Just like today, you see um, the same thing. Uh, one of the points I was going to mention is that it, it, uh, I'm doing research on um, black radicalism in Los Angeles right now in the 1960s and 1970s. And so if you look at the case of Angela Davis, for example, the who's still in the land of the living, as we know, and was accused as being complicit in a courtroom shootout in August 1970, just north of San Francisco, was on trial for her, her life. Her campaign attracted the glitterati, to use your term. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr., who was a talented perform black performer, Jewish performer too, I should say, uh, who rubbed shoulders with Richard M. Nixon, did benefits for Angela Davis, for example. When she was freed, the Rolling Stones, the rock groups sent her flowers, for example. So I, I think we have to realize that if you have a, a, a theory that says you should build a broad front against the excesses of monopoly capitalism, well, that means what it says. <laughs> you know, it's not just the front of the like-minded. Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to attract the glitterati even. And, and in particular, if you attract them to your cause, as, you, as opposed to your being attracted to their cause, well, what is there to complain about? I mean, you know, it's not going to be easy. And uh, here's where Marcus has the best possible uh, comparison of Paul Robeson's voice to offer. To, to your point, it's like with that attraction came that a willing transfer of wealth from, you know, people who were, you know, artists that, who were wealthy, you know, just giving to um, left causes. And, you know, that's in, in, in um, Paul Robeson's example of, you know, creating organizations um, to, you know, support and push left causes as well. Um so I, I, it's a import, very important point to us, like how some of these movements were just able to to to, to move because you know we still exist under capitalism. I mean, <laughs> money is kind of necessary to get get some things going. Um, but I think uh, also too, I I think so far we've kind of avoided uh, the elephant in the room. Um, but uh, which is to say, Paul Robeson's stature. Um, so not everybody's like six three. They probably listed him six four on his uh, uh, football programs. Um, also makes God sound like Ben Shapiro. Uh, his <laughs> so his physical dom domination seems to have uh, played a central role in, in standing in a picket line, uh, going against cops and you know, etc. Can you can you talk about uh, how I guess you can channel some of this like the, the not necessarily or at least the black excellence trope, but for good, um, and then some of the experiences that he had in athletics possibly gave him the the, the strength to stand its ground. Well, yes, I mean, as an All American football player at Rutgers University in the World War One era. Uh, playing against teams that were hardly desegregated 
and football being a violent game of mayhem in any case, uh, he complained, and the record shows that he was justified, that in various scrums, to use the rugby term, you would have uh, opponents from the other team seeking to break his wrists, break his jaw. Obviously, this helps to inure in him and develop in him a certain kind of steadfastness, uh, a certain kind of strength that then is fungible and transferable to other realms, allowing him to stand fast when being grilled, as he was in the 1950s. You can probably find it online when he's called before the House on American Activities Committee and goes back and forth uh, with regard to right-wing congressmen about whether or not he's a member of the U.S. Communist Party, his position on the Soviet Union, uh, etc. Um, in my boxing book, uh, I, I quote the well-known phrase about uh, how the victory over Napoleon at Waterloo is one on the playing fields of England, the athletic fields. And I think that that's an apt metaphor. Um, in my boxing book, I talk about all the, um, the political leaders who were boxers, including Nelson Mandela, by the way. I'm sure you've seen the famous picture of him in a boxer stance. The list is long. And so uh, I think to, to complete the thought, that's one of the reasons why uh, Title IX, which opened the door to equality and collegiate spending on women's athletics, was so important because it was not just a matter of women being allowed to participate in fun and games. It was an opportunity to develop that steadfastness, uh, to develop that strength to develop that camaraderie, which is transferable and fungible and is a uh, bedrock of progressivism and radicalism, by the way, too. Um, all right, Carly, do you want me to play, just go on the next one? Yeah, let's do it. That's good. That's the last question. And then uh, we'll, we'll open up for questions from and calls, call-ins, calls in. That's how we say it. Yeah. <laughs> Not Collins. Yeah. Collins sounds uh, like Phil Collins. But Collins Powell. Um, well, yeah. And, and as it's playing, I'll, I'll open it up um, so people can start getting in the queue. Uh, there's there's a beautiful moment in a, at an event for uh, refugees in which a black brother yells from the back, like, all you intellectuals need to talk to the African working class. And, Ro- and Robeson is actually moved by this to take a political organizing more seriously. I'm wondering how rare it is for such an interaction to take place now with the Beyonce's and Jay-Z's of the world. Is it is it unfair to expect members of marginalized communities to relinquish their neoliberal individualist successes to be more accountable to working class people, that is to be class traders? Well, this is what I would say. I think it's incumbent upon us to build a movement, just like the movement that led Sammy Davis Jr., to feel comfortable raising money for Angela Davis, despite his ties to Richard M. Nixon. It's, it's incumbent upon us to build a movement that would allow that 
same thing to occur. I mean, certainly, I'm sure I don't have to tell you or much of your audience that it's naive to expect celebrities to lead a political movement. You can only expect them to reflect a political movement when that political movement has demonstrated strength that they cannot ignore. At the same time, of course, uh, you mentioned Beyonce and her and Serena Williams, the tennis player, have been quite eloquent in discussing the rather problematic, shall we say, uh, infant mortality rates and maternal death rates when it comes to black women giving birth, uh, both of which they've had direct experience with. Now, obviously, that that's a bridge for progressives to build towards them to explain how that happens, where it, your wealth aside, you're still a black woman in a white supremacist society that can then die <laughs> as a result of tr- trying to do the eternal, that is to say, give birth. So uh, once again, I think it's a bilateral issue. Uh, It's not just a matter of celebrities waking up. It's a matter of radicals and progressives building a movement that cannot be ignored. All right. That was that was our conversation with Dr. Gerald Horn. Um, We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, but now we want to hear from you and what you actually thought about this uh, interview and uh, what your kind of overall, like if you have any questions for Dr. Horn, like I'm pretty sure we can take it back to him and uh, he might like give, give us responses that we can bring back to you next time when we're on. But on that note, I have to say that uh, I have to dip. I have to get out um, because I have a 4.30 thing. Uh, usually this is supposed to be three to four and uh, we'll like have 30 minutes for calls and stuff. But this was like something that took a little longer. So I'm really sorry that I have to leave Marcus alone with you people. So I hope that you'll be a little kind and considerate and uh, and also interesting for sure uh, in your with your uh, questions and responses. Uh, but I will see you very soon next Wednesday. Later, Garthic. And what do you mean, right. you people? No man, what the hell? Or you folks, you guys, uh, whatever. You guys makes me sound like I'm from the valley or something. So I'll just say, you people seems. Uh, all right. On that yeah, note, I'll head out. Later. I'm actually figuring out how to leave this thing. Okay, fine. Figure it. All right. Uh, well, you're stuck in here with me. If there is anyone. That wants to chime in, um, give some of your thoughts on whether it's uh, Robeson's life, some of the more, you know, some of the very interesting things uh, within, you know, that context of time. Um, yeah, yeah. It, you know, what what, what, what are y'all thoughts? Um, but also giving mine, I think, A, I think it's very, it's, it's important to really like look into some of the, all of the factors. Um, and that's kind of what I want to ask the question of, about, you know, Robeson's size and his voice. Um, because the man was like a titan. Um, and obviously not every human being is, <laughs> yeah. 
six three, you know, and 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 have this booming voice that can you know command respect regardless of ideology and position. You know, it's just kind of an awe inspiring um, voice. But they, like past that, you know, there are actions, um, behaviors that you know everyone can engage in and be just as powerful, if not more so. Um, but the thing is, is that you know none of these things exist on their own. None of these people exist on their own, um, and and that's something that I think is 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 probably one of the more important points of the interview was that. Uh, Paul Robeson wasn't uh, wasn't alone, and even in you know the height of apartheid in in, in the United States in the Jim Crow era, era, having that international community, um, and even having other celebrities um, to be able to support a movement, you know, the, and look what it took, right? You look what the amount of committee hearings, the blacklisting, you know, the the um, harassments of the state in order to just stop the popularity of the movement. Um, It it gives me hope as far as like the ability to, I guess, catch lightning in a bottle a second time. Um, But I don't know if y'all feel the same way. All right. So we got the first call in here, Rudy. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Uh, good. Thanks for um, interviewing Dr. Uh, uh, Gerald Horn. I mean, the dude is so knowledgeable about everything, and he gives you a lot to think about, you know. Um, he challenges the way that we see history, even on the left, you know, the idea that the United States was a counter-revolutionary um, sort of project versus this thing of, you know, small people rising up and all of that stuff. I mean, we, yeah, it's, it's weird because, like, everybody's sort of trying to claim the right, the, the, this idea of, like, um, a an America that started out pretty well and stuff like that, but the whole project is messed up. And so, I don't know. I think I can see why we, many of us on the left, are invested in, you know, being good citizens and all of that stuff. And so Gerald Horn basically saying, no, actually, from the very beginning, this uh, this project was messed up. That, you know, it's 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 difficult because it sort of isolates us. You know, we want to be part of the grand. We want to be sort of the vanguard of what is the right America, you know, the true America that has been sort of um, pushed the wrong way or something. But... Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it, 100%. It's, it's, um, it's reframing it as, like, this is something inherently good that needs to be fixed, you know, versus I think what we all see is the truth um, that this thing was just inherently bad. And within it, there have been, you know, uprisings and contradictions, you know, like with anything in life. And um, But, yeah, that, that doesn't take away from what the state, you know, especially when you talk about the United States government from its inception or even precursor, you know, um, it was only geared towards one thing, you know, and, and that is advancing center colonialism, uh, legitimizing and, um, 
I guess, finalizing the transfer transition into capitalism. And you look at the historical events and, you know, and, and uh, Dr. Horn uh, refers to the United States as the, as the, as the, the right wing anchor, you know, the yeah. conservative anchor. And I think that's a very <laughs> apt description. Um, and especially after World War II, when the United States is the largest economic power um, and, and really is able to construct the international world in its, in its, in, you know, it's very much in its own light. What did it do with that opportunity? You know? Yeah, actually, that that's a really good point, because as people have been losing their minds on Russia and how the Russian people, you know, even if even if they didn't vote for Vladimir Putin and all of that stuff, they have some sort of responsibilities to um, do something. I'm like, we have actually more responsibility for what is happening in Russia. We created this uh, massive system and have basically... We could have changed the rules and decided that we're not going to have um, a, a global system of the fittest, um, the whatever of the fittest. But then we decided, yeah, if you have the most amount of money, if you have the most amount of guns, if you have this power, you can do whatever you you want. And so now we got China that's like, yeah, we we have the most amount of money, we are strong, and all of this stuff. So under this system that you guys created, we could do, you know. Like, I'm not saying that necessarily China is doing what we're saying, that, but the way that we set up the world, why can't they do what we've been doing? It's it's weird. But just to um, finish um, with, I was going to, um, just a couple of things to finish. So one is, I was going to ask you guys, what do you think are maybe the responsibilities of leftists who are now maybe getting more seen to change up the words that we use, for example? And because... It's it's a language war as well. And so when we have, for example, like um, Gerald Horn, obviously he doesn't get into as many platforms, but we have like Bree Joy Gray, who is now on the Hill and stuff. And so when, when I hear people say leftists want to do this and leftists want to do this, and they're oftentimes just talking about liberals, I feel like we should, you know, we have the responsibility to you know, separate ourselves from liberals as much as possible and then change up the words. You know, these, the people that are out there droning Somali children, droning Yemeni children, these people are not moderates or conservatives. These things, are, these people are like, I feel like this, we, we have, to, if we get on TV, if we get a chance to speak about these people, we should at least like qualify them in the way that best fits because they qualify us as extremists, as this, as that. And that does, ultimately, that does not help us because there's a lot of ignorant people in the United States. And when they hear somebody say, oh, this person is in the moderate and this person is a, what's it called? It's, it's, it sounds like we are the weird people. Um, and then the last part is just that I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, I guess uh, I see I see the shift towards internationalism, you know, because I, for example, grew up I grew up here, but I was born in another country, and so I've always had some sort of like um, ties to Africa, for example. And but I'm seeing like music. There's a lot of ties that are being connected through music. Um, I see there's a lot of ties that are connected, even in just like these type of flat platforms. I think we could do more. And we, many of us live in these like cities where there are lots of like 
people of, of all kinds of backgrounds and stuff, and we can make connections. They're difficult to make, I understand, you know, but I think if we try to put ourselves out there more, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be good. And then if we try to consume, we speak English, we can consume Nigerian, um, uh, what's it called, media. We can consume Kenyan media. We can consume um, media from like, what's that country in uh, South America that speaks English again? I can remember. But it'd be cool if we were to, you know, consume these medias, connect with these people uh, from, you know, other places that are in our communities, you know, that at least it helps me be able to like better connect with people. It's it's weird when you're always studying uh, Yemen and then basically have no connection to Yemen. It doesn't seem as real. You know? And you find actually that a lot of these people uh, agree with you. And then it's, you're actually armed with facts, you know, like real shit when somebody's telling you about, um, you know, Venezuela, or you don't know about Venezuela, or you, you know, you're just an American, but you, you actually, you'll find that you're not crazy, that a lot of people out there do believe that the United States is the greatest threat. They even look at the Russian thing, and then, you know, so when you're talking to Americans, you are, a lot of them ignorant, telling you all oh, this, you're, you're crazy, you're crazy. You start to feel crazy, but once you stop, start talking to people, reality makes it over there that they have to agree with you. You know, here, people are so so far away from reality that it's just like they're all in their asses and all kind of bullshit, but over there, like, people people see what's up. Um, but, yeah, that's my point. Yeah, no, I, I largely agree, and I think, you know, kind of what you're speaking to is uh, it's something... For sure, dealing with populations with the like within the imperial core, um, and especially Americans, like we we even you know are the most you know like even some of the most impoverished within the United States are still more well off than than than, than impoverished people elsewhere, and that right. level across the board you know it holds. And so, um, and I yeah you know you go back to the interview and and, and some of that Gerald Gerald Horn said was that the, the movement needs to grow to the point where it cannot be ignored, you know? And so on some levels, I think, yeah, basically it, it is. What kind of there? All... We just have to make these connections. I think everybody sees that the world is burning and, you know, we're, yeah, other people are more desperate than we are. And we just got to join these people. Yeah, no, that's where, you know, like having, and that's where like the, the, the rebuilding, you know, I guess like you see like after, especially Red Scare, after, um, COINTELPRO, you know, after, after you're getting the, uh, attack and oppression of any type of liberation movement, um, and, you know, uh, a, a friend of mine, writer for Black Agenda Report, Pascal Robert, uh, calls the 50 year counter revolution, um, which, you know, it's like, you know, it's just maybe a series of those. Uh, but at the end of the day, looking at where we are now, obviously, you know, like the left has to be able to rebuild um, and grow again. And then, um, and uh, how do we do that? And, and some of that is having the difficulties of communicating with Americans that don't understand, you know, life and the world as we do. And yeah, how do you make that more attractive? Um, and I, you know, it comes in. And I think there's a few different answers to that. You know, um, how we talk about things rhetorically is one thing. Um, 
but you know, I think action, you know, like like speaks louder than you know than words. Um, that's 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 the truest way that you're going to get people um, to you know to understand that you know like this is a a truly uh, an ideology that's truly focused on 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 people. Um, you know, is is not only being in organizations and having these discussions to make these connections, but the programs uh, we engage in, in in some way actually need to, you know, alleviate uh, some of the, the, the greatest ills and, you know, really trying to, you know, just, just rip open the, the, the those, those main contradictions within capitalism. And I think, you know, it's like looking at Chris Small's is someone who is a perfect example as, as, as a modern day, or even, you know, in like the, the, the Starbucks uh, unionization effort doesn't necessarily have a single person that's kind of like in front of it all. Um, but that's, that's a similar thing, you know, where it's, yeah, you know, the, the, the people are making leftism uh, more, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What's the word thinking about? Um, more enticing, you know, um, and it's just hard to do because of you know. And this is uh, uh, Fisher um, writing about capitalist realism, right? Where uh, he say it's easy to 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 envision the end of the world and the end of capitalism, um, and it's described also as like when they say talk about like post history, um, but yeah, the idea that most people really don't have the mindset to accept revolution. Um, and so <laughs> it makes it difficult to convince them to be a revolutionary. Um, but maybe, you know, that, that demand up front isn't necessary. You know, maybe it's, can we come help with, can you help us improve this community? You know, and as, and even as when, uh, Dr. Horn explained, like when people are trying to deal with the issues like black mothers, you know, dying <laughs> at way higher rates and not only standing in solidarity with them, not only actually joining with their actions to try and protect, you know, their health care, their rights, um, but also to try and show that the, the true problems, you know, the true the, the inceptions of some of these problems. Um, and, and, and really like what, like that's, all a radical really is, right? You know, like when you look at the definition of the term radical, you're talking about the root, you know, it's going after the root of the problem. Um, and hopefully if people want to solve problems, they'll be attracted to the solution that, that takes it out at the root. You know, I'm hoping that somehow people are able to have like this cognitive dissonance where they, yes, they both worship, you know, the... Uh, you know, the likes of Beyonce and Obama and still have their sort of eyes set on the goals, you know, because Obama did sort of create this random clique of, you know, elite sort of social, how do I say it? You know, pop stars and the likes. Um, Kanye was, was uh, ended up coming with uh, the Republicans. But I think sort of the Kanye phenomena and the, Candace Owens phenomena is basically the Republicans playing along to this thing that Barack Obama started. And so, yeah, there's 
she, you know, she suffers somewhat because she's a black person, but she's also like Obama is. They're so they're so tied and so wedded to the system that I'm not really sure which one force which force is going to be greater. You see what I'm saying? Oh no. Hello. Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think we can't we can't lose sight that like um, Kanye and Candace aren't new. You know, they are reiterations of <laughs> of of something that has existed in you know, or you know, type of person that has existed in the black community, type of person that existed in any marginalized and oppressed community. You know, because identity just isn't the end all of uh, an individual. And we just know that there are other factors that will get people to act other than, you know, their black skin or, you know, whatever that specific identity is. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I, like what, where the key is, is building a movement that can't be ignored because I don't, we're never going to just straight up convince, you know, Obama or any of the celebrities that came around him, we're never going to be able to convince them to just join our side. You know, it'll have to be something that it grows to a point that cannot be ignored. And I mean, this is going back to, you know, famous <laughs> uh, coal miner uh, strikes song. you know, yeah, build it so big and drive home the question, which side are you on? And I think that that was more clear in the 30s. And you saw these wealthy artists choose a side and they chose the people. But that distinction isn't isn't so clear in, in I think, in modern day. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Rudy, for calling in, um, and, 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 and giving your points. Um, is there anybody else that wants to jump in? Oh, uh, Rudy's back. Um, so I, I just wanted to mention that I was, um, in France during the Gilets Jaunes movement and what you was, what you were talking about right there, um, happened. Um, basically people were saying, you know, were the reasons you guys have all this money, you always talked about how you have your fans that uh, to thank for all that you have and you know, how we mean the world to you and everything, and you'd be there for us. What happened now that we need, you know, where are you guys? And so it got some people to really back them up. Other artists pretended to back them up for a bit, and then once Macron um, started shooting people's eyes, then they sort of backed off. But it did, there was, they, they did basically give them the ultimatum, like, are you with us or are you not with us? And so that was sort of clarifying. And yeah, it'd be cool if we were ever to get to that point. But like, it, it was there. You saw the, you, you saw people going out on a Saturday and really like change. You, you can see uh, history changing as the government was having to react. Macron says something on Saturday, people get out. They're pissed about it, and then Macron has to either, um, you know, reverse what he was saying, which, yes, made people happier, but then it also pissed them off because they're like, okay, so this whole time you actually could do this thing, but then you just wanted to piss us off, and so it yeah. just it was amazing. Yeah, no, that's I mean that's 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 something that um, it can be powerful and it can help, right? It just helps actually drive the movement, um, but it takes. 
like the growth, you know, it's like, there's, that's just the hard work is on us. You know, there's no one that's coming, coming to save us. Um, but if, if, if you, if we can, you know, continue to grow our movement to that point where people are going to have to choose, um, there's, you know, and, and like, you know, I can't even think of like going back to uh birdie campaign and the amount of artists and musicians that were playing his campaign event, stuff like that. I mean, like Cardi B was was out there doing, you know, interviews and, and, and ads for him and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's possible, right? Like, it, it, it's very, it's very possible. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's on us to, to keep working to, to be able to bring that in. And also too, not just like, paying attention to these great, you know, the big artists. And this is something that we're going to be going through uh, throughout the show. Um, identifying with the artists that exist that already have our already, uh, that already have our ideology, you know, um, yeah, like immortal technique is, is, is probably one of the, 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 you know, most famous, but you know, like, you know, B Dolan and Mariah Parker and, you know, Napoleon, the legend, uh, Nejman Nefertiti, uh, B. Dolan, I don't know if I just said it already. There's so, there's a lot of artists out there that already, you know, are making our music. Um, and, and so I think even like you said, right, of like, when people talk about like, hey, we're the one that, that made you, we're your fans. You know, if we're on the left, like, we could be fans of people who are actually um, reflecting the, the the life and the society that, that we want through music and that doesn't necessarily mean it's all like yeah kumbaya or hey let me rap fucking marx's capital you know like it's it's it it's just something that has a framework um that is that's true and that has that has the people um at the, at the forefront not gold watches and diamonds and bitches and hoes so um does anybody else? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Um, low key, yeah. Rapper uh, from the UK, uh, low key, yeah. And which low key's been involved in like the anti-war effort in the UK as well to a huge extent. Um, <laughs> no, not Charlemagne the God. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, 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 no. But hey, you know, someone's got to do the Kamala interviews, right? Someone's got to do the Kamala interviews. Um, okay. Well, it seems like everybody else might be a little, little bit shy. Um, so that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go. Coming up on two hours. Um. Which I think both uh, both of our episodes have been two hours, um, but uh, yeah, I want to thank everybody for listening in. Um, we will be, you know, chopping. We'll probably be cutting out all of the discussion of me not being able to work this damn app, um, and then putting up the uh, a final um, here probably tomorrow, um, and then more more to come. Uh, more to come. So we're trying to, you know, like locking in guests and everything like that. So we'll hopefully be able to release, uh, um, some, some, some names on the calendar here shortly. Um, but also too, you know, I just want to say, uh, if, 
if if there are any artists out there that you know or you know like they, that 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 y'all are interested in that you know that we can reach out to um yeah let us know um dm us at well, like the left flank bets twitter you know we can jump on our discord um and just message marcus you know um or yeah just send messages in here and um we'll try and, and try and run them down and have a have a conversation with them. oh snap okay hold on hold on we got one more lance lance you are in yeah, hi, I just joined, so just a quick comment, you know, uh, something funny happened. So Paul Robeson, obviously a giant. Um, do you know who Lillian Gish is? She was like a Betty Betty uh, Davis and uh, and uh, Taylor, just super, super that level. She's one of the only uh, four American actresses to be, uh, you know, brought into whatever they call it, of the French, uh, the French Hall of Fame or whatever it's called. And she's a, she's a she's a giant herself, Lillian Gish. Now there's a, a Satchel Paige. Remember the black pitcher, right, for the yep. black league. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then there's of course uh, Salvador Dali, right. So I'm watching one of these old on you know recently uh, flashback shows of Dick Cavett, and I'm like, wow, the panel was Salvador Dali, freaking Satchel Paige, and Lillian Gish who is like, not just like Elizabeth Taylor, current actress, she is older than, and she was like this iconic figure, you know? And yeah. it's like, it, it, the thought occurred to me, wow, they don't have uh, panels like that anymore. And then immediately thought, they don't make people like that anymore. And no offense to LeBron James, you know, he grew up in the time <laughs> he grew up in. But, you know, when you have like John Carlos and Tommy, Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fist raised at the Mexico City Olympics. And you have uh, Muhammad Ali and all the stuff he went through with his trials and tribulations and all of the things with, you know, with uh, Jackie Robinson or any of the people, you know, after him and all these struggles. It's like, dude, just, you know, I'm sorry. The last person I want to quote is freaking Laura Ingram. But, dude, if that's the way you're going, just shut up and dribble And older, older people like Kareem. OK, people like Dr. J. They've been there. Now, Dr. J doesn't speak out politically as much. Kareem does. And he's saying, no, buddy, you're not you're not doing it. You're not getting it done. And this whole kowtowing to China and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's just crazy. There just aren't people like Paul Robeson anymore. So, I mean, I go on. But if you want to have a back and forth, I'm just shooting, shooting my mouth off here, you know, in a sense. You know, there's no actual yeah, well, point in other words where I'm going. I, think, I don't mean to say no, that what I, I'm not saying is smart, but I, there's nowhere I'm ending with this so much as just wow. We're, we're how do we? We're never going back there. How do we create the 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 old world? You know? And the old days were yeah. never as good as you thought, but still, there was a lot of more good about stuff. And, and just to make this other quick point, we're talking about the journalism of of today and oh, you know, disinformation and Twitter and all this. Like what? We had such vehement dis. Buttes with the partisan media, with the yellow journalism and the Pulitzer, that wasn't all done just for good when they were doing these muckraking stories. It was for money and it was a lot of corruption and a lot of power mongering and it wasn't perfect. But in between all that, all of these court cases just kept furthering First Amendment stuff. I'm off on a tangent, so maybe I shouldn't go on like this, but it just kind of points to the same kind of thing of where society's going is that it was always a struggle going all the way back to our founding with the Alien Sedition Act. You couldn't say the wrong thing. Wilson with the Red Scare and all the curtailing of speech then. But every time there was a court case that came up, the, the free speech people won that case every single time. And so you had in the 50s, you had Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller. 
was banned. And the people that wanted to fight it said, well, go to bookstores. No, then we got to fight it in every bookstore in every county. They shipped it through the mails, made a big stink to make sure it went to, and they fought it in the federal courts instead of all the individual courts. And they won that battle. Larry Flint won the hustler argument. Okay, so all these arguments were fought. It wasn't perfect. But every single time, free speech won out. Now you got liberals saying, no, 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 that's all gone. Free speech doesn't mean shit. We got to censor. It's nuts. Never saw it happen. And it's very dangerous. So on both those points, I'd love to hear your response. Uh, so yeah, on the first, um, you know, the idea, like, you know, like, they don't make him like that anymore. Um, I, I, like, if we go to lots of exceptions, out of the, you know. there's exceptions, there's exceptions yeah. but I, yeah. I don't mean to. Yeah, lots, there's, 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 there's exceptions, you know, uh, but no, and I think though, it's like, it's not so much, uh, you know, like, like society, right? We were talking about, um, that, uh, reality will shape, you know, people's decisions and, and, and general life, right? Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, though, you did have that, right? Of what happened to Paul Robeson, what happened to Nina Simone, what happened to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. You know, uh, I mean, fuck what happened in normal Finkelstein. Um, the 50 year counter revolution, when you're looking at between like 1930 and the 80s, um, instilled into American society of like literally what is and is not acceptable. Um, yeah. And especially the actions of celebrity. And so that's the thing is that when you, when you paint you know, <laughs> the the neoliberal, uh, uh, like, Manchurian candidate for progressives uh, of Obama as, you know, this huge shift in American politics when all it was was a doubling down in, in the neoliberal order, you then have that response, right? And it's like they're talking about, like, something that can't be ignored, you know, that hope and change shit, <laughs> like... That was to a point, you know, that couldn't be ignored. And to the, you know, then you have fucking who is it? Young Jeezy, my president is black and my Lambo is blue. You've got Common and 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 all types of 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 the you know the conscious rap crew, you know, like making their rounds through the White House. Um, and. And the thing is, I think you know, like that, that's 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 the issue. You know, it's it it sucks, but in a lot of ways, I am going to you know, like kind of turn it inward on on the on the left and say, you know, at this point, we're failing to galvanize. Um, and you could say failing, and I think you could say the government suppresses. You know, the United States government absolutely suppresses uh, left action. Um, but that's that's on us, you know. We can't hope that the capitalists stop controlling the media. And like you make you put make a good point, we can't hope that they do. We can't hope that uh, some of these artists just realize what's going on. You know, we got to make the case. We have to grow, and we have to become uh, inignorable. I guess is uh, <laughs> the yeah, yeah. Is where, where we're going to end up. Like you said, the time shape you. So in other words, imagine the first year of Public Enemy. They weren't going to the White House anytime soon, but Flavor Flav, you know, <laughs> later in the yeah. day, celebrity which real. I, <laughs> He'd have been I right there. Hey, Prez, how you doing, buddy? It's so funny, yeah. right? And uh, maybe there's a sense of hope then, right? Is this, you know, is Chris Smalls getting into the White House, you know, getting, in, you know, into the White House? 
yeah. Chris Smalls did not kowtow to the Democrats. Chris Smalls did not give up on his position or ideology. You know, Chris Smalls is exactly the same person he was when he got fired from Amazon for, yep. <laughs> you know, for fighting for his fellow workers as he was, you know, yesterday walking into the White House. And that yep. goes exactly to the point that Dr. Horn, and I, I know you said you jumped in and you maybe didn't get to hear, but it goes into the point that Dr. Horn was, 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 was trying to make is that once you become, you know, once you cannot be ignored and you force people to choose, you know, then that's when you see <laughs> which side are you on. And that's not to say that Joe Biden is on the side of the working class. Right. But Chris Smalls and, and not just Chris, uh, you know, I don't even want to take it, just him, the Amazon labor union is doing something that cannot be ignored. Starbucks yeah. unions is doing something that cannot be ignored. Yeah. And, 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 and we got to keep, yeah, we got to support that. We got to keep pushing with that and hope and like hope that, that the Paul Robeson's come out, right? Because it, I mean, fuck, like, this is a long shot, but who's to say Kanye doesn't figure it out? Oh, God. Who's to say, who's to say Chappelle doesn't figure it out? I don't have much hope in this, but that's the thing is once you make something that cannot be ignored, people are forced to choose. And at one point, Kanye accurately said George Bush doesn't care about black people. Yeah, yeah, but... Kanye, see, Kanye, like while I was on the chat, he's like, he's a billionaire. And you don't get to be a billionaire without fucking a lot of people over. I don't care how nice you were going in. I agree. I agree. But that's the thing, too. You just don't. Oprah, forget it. Oprah, no way. No, you don't get to be a billionaire unless you're willing to step on people, to lie and cheat and steal, and you have to be ruthless and you have to be greedy. So I'm I'm not really a fan. Even if Kanye says something brilliant. He's saying it because it's going to get him another hundred million dollars. He's not saying he might be saying yeah. it. No, he might be saying it from, from his hardcore self, and it might be so honest and true. But no, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying wait, it. Wait, wait. And I'm not buying basketball players that want to talk about civil rights and kowtow to China. I don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? Well, this, I don't want to hear. It. But this is and this know? is so. But this is this is the thing. Dave Chappelle's a big phony. Dave Chappelle's a rich kid. Dave Dave Chappelle was born a rich kid. And all his stuff is an act. It's not who he truly is. And I agree with you 100%. A lot of people don't know that Dave Chappelle's fucking mom worked for the State Department. That when he's, you know, giving, you know, these, these comedic, comedic interpretations of, of, of black poverty, it's, it's one from the, it's a, from the spectator view, uh, not from the experienced view. Um, all he does I agree is with all down. that, but that's oh, hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on. Hold so on. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. The, the 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 point the point that you know Dr. Horn was making and the point that I'm making is that obviously like people make you know bad decisions in life, right? And as an abolitionist, you know I accept people making some <laughs> decisions in their life that may be bad, but the point is. Is that it's on the, it's on us to create a movement that galvanizes people, and right. at that point, it, it doesn't matter who who did what. If you're willing to make the steps in a radical direction, then you know, yeah, then then then, then welcome aboard, you know, with the exception of like Henry Kissinger, uh, <laughs> you know, like there's there's exceptions. Yeah. But really, like across, I think across the board is that 
we can create the movement that cannot be ignored, then people, then in large part, will choose the right side. Absolutely. And Chris Malls, like you're saying, that, that was your point was about Chris Malls. He's not going to change. You can just tell 100 years from he ain't going to change no matter how long he lives. And the history books in 50 or 60 years, he's going to have a whole chapter, a whole bunch of pages on union stuff. He is profound. He is different. Yeah. I don't remember there ever being, you know, go back to the teens when what's his name as a communist, you know, union guy. Remember, it goes back to the 19th century. You know, your history markets and all that. And all the way through. It was movements of bunches of people over decades. And this guy just did it like with his friend multiplied by and then four and then eight. And it was all done. The most organic movement with the smallest number of people that they, what they did, it's going to be remembered for a long, 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 long time. Chris Smalls is right there with any of the like Bill, uh, big Bill Hayward of the Wobblies or any of these people. He is a giant already as far as I'm concerned. And I don't like, to, I don't inflate people. You know, I really don't. You know, show me the goods. And he's shown the goods through and through. He's wearing the same garb. He's the same self. I'm, and he even told the White House before that. He goes, yo, I'm going in my gear. Don't If you don't want me to come, which, fine. If you think that's disrespecting the president, but I'm, I'm either going to come in my baseball cap and my hoodie and all whatever I wear, or I won't come. I won't disrespect you by not telling you ahead of time. So the man's got it, all his dots uh, dotted and all his T's crossed, man. It's so great to see this guy. He's a He's my hero right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's like that's he's like you don't show up in the eat the rich jacket to the White House to change afterwards. You know, you don't change after that. Um, Hey, Marcus, again, I want to hear what you had to say, but this is a great back and forth. Do you think he would do it a little bit like that? Take that, AOC. This ain't the Met Gala. This is oh, (laughs) tax the rich. Eat the rich. Tax the rich. Eat the rich. She wore, uh, uh, somebody's got to write this. I got to Twitter this. He, she wrote tax the rich with a bunch of other people that, that got tax shelters and in more countries than there is. Right. And he went to the fucking White House with eat the rich. Take that AOC. You know, it was a slap in her face, right? Wait. And that's the thing is that AOC and I think there too, is the rest of the, the, you know, people who consider, you know, you call it like the squad or whatever. Um, I mean, they're yeah, they're officials, and even to the point too is like Chris Chris Smalls now is the interim president, you know, of of the Amazon Labor Union. Is not above report above reproach, right? He is accountable to those those union members, and I think, you know, whether whether it was a shot at the, you know AOC and, and you know Chris Smalls has been wearing the jacket for quite some time. Um, it was lead, leadership is showing people the way and not necessarily telling people the way. And I think Chris Smalls, and especially too, of like even having AOC come out um, at the, at, at the rally after the whole, you know, Twitter dust up. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, Chris, Chris Smalls is a good leader because he's showing people the way. And I think it's especially too of how to deal with politicians who, you know, are seemingly like on the left Um it's not necessarily a disrespect. You you, you, you call balls and strikes, um, but when you do that with the forefront of the movement, um, you know, with the movement being at the forefront of your mind, you don't end up just saying, "Oh, you're you're just a you know bought and paid for dem and screw you." And I, you know, like the thing is that whether any of us like it or not, whether Chris Smalls like it or not, he recognizes that 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 AOC is the rep, you know a very extremely popular representative 
um, mm-hmm. and 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 one that represents a lot of his union members. Um, and so that's yeah. a that's that's now a professional relationship um, that I think that I think yeah that he is influencing the relationship in a very spectacular <laughs> way. Absolutely, um, absolutely true. Yep, he's going to be in harmony with her. But the same thing I said to Sav, just to throw this little tidbit in, I think it was kind of clever. I said, yeah. So AOC, they didn't want to come out. And he said, if they come out now, they come to this la- this rally for the other for the other for the other building now. But they're not turning back. If they're going to come for one uh, one a photo op and then go tweet about it and not stay with us, then we don't want them. So I think they had a little chat and said, okay, AOC, okay, Bernie, you people. But the next time there's a thing, are you going to be at every rally? Because I'm going to call you out if you don't. So here's what he said basically by that, right, Marcus? To piggyback on your point, calling, he's calling the tune. And I love my parents. I love big band music. I love Frank Sinatra. But you know what? It's the Beatles, baby. It's a Rolling Stone. We're listening to rock and roll. Doesn't mean the other stuff is bad, you know. Go ahead. But no. It would, and, and he's making them dance to his tune. And he's not turning back. So they're going to have exactly. to dance to his tune now. You know what I mean? So. Yep. Um, and uh, so, and, and Lance, thank you for calling in. Um, but uh, Rudy's now on the back end. Um, so uh, we'll bring in uh, Rudy. I think. Okay, here we go. All right. All right, Yo, Rudy, what's up? Actually, I just wanted to hear you guys discuss how we could maybe make joining the military less attractive. Because financially, it's attractive. Um, there's all kind of other reasons why you should join it, but also wherever you're at, if you say you're a veteran, people just worship you. I've like, it's, it's weird. Nowhere else. That's just maybe, maybe, maybe not nowhere else, but like, I've not been anywhere else where as where it happens, like in the United States, every time I'm at the, um, when I leave the country and I come back, um, and I'm at the airport, I'm reminded that I'm back in the United States because there's the whole military worship. And, you know, and I understand that it, there's a, we got to be strategic in the way that we approach it because people, again, love our uh, soldiers and think that they are actually doing us some good. Uh, but obviously, as we know that they are, you know, doing us, you know, it, the military doesn't help. Like, how do we make people not want to join the military? Can we, like, Say that we're not gonna date somebody who joins the military because there's there's people that are like if you voted for Donald Trump I'm not I can't vote for, I can't date you but then those same people are okay with dating people who have gone to Iraq and just massacred people you know and then they actually worship them it you know so if yeah if somebody could sort of you know if what what do you think how could we because i do think we have to poke some sort of hole through that we can't continue yeah. on one hand saying that you know mm. so yeah, well I'll, i don't know if you do this uh, but you. I'm, yeah i don't know if you do i'm i'm a marine corps veteran you know uh and actually <laughs> next up in the queue uh doc is was a, a navy corpsman um and you know, so outside of the revolutionary tracks, I have I, I host a you know stream, uh, left like vets, you know, and um, yeah, that's that's a very very big question, you know, and something that we've dabbled in, um, but that part of it is is actually communicating with with young people, you know, and that 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 takes, you know, actually 
having a relationship with like young people in your community, you know, like it just, you got to know whether it is like younger cousins, you know, the neighbors kid that's, you know, coming up in junior, senior year in high school. Um, You don't necessarily have to like patronize these people. Um, But having an honest conversation of what the United States military does, which is easier and easier now, you know, there's more and more information about the Iraq war, about Afghanistan, um, about the U.S. support for Israeli apartheid, about the U.S. support for Saudi genocide in, uh, in Yemen. You know, there are over and over and over again substantial reasons why, and and then even too going, you know, not even just the, 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 the ills that the United States military does across the world. The ills that it it does to the veterans itself, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and is 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 talking about like I I have <laughs> uh, you know mental health issues. I I I don't want to start like even trying yeah. to count the amount of people that I've served with that that have died by suicide or that had you know or just de- you know, like died you know like this. There's so much out there to have right. a real and honest conversation with people that's yeah. not it, it's 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 a lot harder um than, and i mean yeah like i get it because like i walk by the thank you for your service sign at, at dulles airport and i want to rip right. it down yeah you i've know, seen I mean, like i was i'm assuming it's still there i haven't been through the airport in a few years now but um but it shocks that, me I, when i see i i saw a pilot basically just go back and forth, back and forth, waiting for this uh, Marine guy just to finish his conversation. I was trying to figure out what this guy's doing. But it, it was to, and then finally he paused the guy's conversation on the phone to say, thank you for your service. And, oh, you know, and I, I feel for, you know, these, and a lot of soldiers are African-Americans, are Native Americans. There's a huge amount mm-hmm. of uh, Native Americans in the uh, f- forces there's a lot of people just from these like poor towns who are just if these I, I wish that these kids had, you know, options, you know, like I wish that they yeah. didn't feel like that. The only way that they could get out and see the world is by joining this, uh, you know, by risking their psyches. And it, it is completely messed up. But it's just like. You know, we got a bunch of psychopaths that run on TV all the time um, that it's a good thing and that these people are doing something good. And, you know, it's just there's a lot of victims and it's just it's awful. I I feel you, man. I don't want to go around patronizing people, but it's just like we got to wake up at some point. And I'm not sure that we can that continuing saying, you know, you guys are doing a lot of good, you're winning us, uh, you know, whatever, and all that, that that's going to help. Um, and then the last point is, did you, do you know about, like, there's a recent 3M suit, and supposedly 3M mm-hmm. had given people, you know, um, headphones or some sort of, like, earplugs yeah. that were faulty. And mm-hmm. these these people, it's, it's, it's the whole, it's messed up, man. Um, yeah, so I'll yeah, let so if, you and the doc uh, go on. Cool, cool. And thank you uh, for for the point. Um, and and also too, it's like what you're describing of like of, of not having um, the situ- the the ability to um, to 
or like it was a poverty draft, right? Of of that, there are no uh, options. There's not a lot of good options, and then you know, so young people are forced into the military, and and like I, I can't tell you, you know, the amount of people that are in service where, you know, it's not, it's like not everyone, but it's like a like pretty much across the board, whether it's housing insecurity to include, you know, heating electricity, water, um, food insecurity, uh, and also just an economic opportunity. Everyone's falling into one of those things or, you know, like college debt, you know, which economic insecurity, um, there's not, there's not one person in service that's there because they love America so much. That's, that's the, one of the biggest lies is that the people wearing the uniform want that on you know because 99.9% of the marines that i served with when they were walking when they were leaving camp lejeune for the last time they were ecstatic we call it getting out like it's prison so that's that's something um it, it's real and like there's tons of chuds that like as soon as they leave they're like you know they, they revert back to these glory days types of things um but at the end of the day it's just not true you know join the military sucks um and i will say there is you know a special place place in my heart for national guard and coast guard um service members who are, you know, Coast Guard saving people from drowning and boats, boat capsizing, fucking National Guard members saving, you know, like going in and saving people from, from uh, emergency disasters and shit like that. There is an opportunity to utilize young people who are, you know, willing to, to, to put their life on the line to save people. It's just, that's not a thing in Iraq, or at least they like, it shouldn't have been a thing in Iraq. It shouldn't have been a thing in Afghanistan. Um, and that's, that's the difference. It's not that there should not be any type of, uh, organized force that can literally defend the people from danger, you know, which it's not going to be some country out there. Like no one's coming to attack us. We've got one of the most secure countries to ever exist in history, not just currently. Um, so the idea that we're on some type of threat is, is false, but also too, is like that, that there is a, there is a good reason, you know, climate catastrophe is a good reason to have a highly mobile ex- expeditionary force. Um, it's just, <laughs> what's the goal, right? What's the goal? Um, and we've got way more bullets than band-aids, uh, really at the end of the day, but, um, doc. You got anything to say if you want to add something in um, on that note? Yeah, unfortunately, the the goal of having such a, you know, insanely funded uh, militaries to maintain, uh, you know, the hegemony that the U.S. has over the whole world and having access to resources and, you know, in the Americas, especially the Middle East, you kind of just see that we're just there to maintain the flow of goods it's kind of like the analogy in that movie Dune where, you know, they're having to go to this desert island for this spice that fuels everything. And they oppress the the people of that planet to be able to maintain that, that commodity. And you can see that with oil, especially. 
you know, in Africa, what's going on in Niger, uh, Western Sahara, everything goes back to, you know, what we, we commodify here, you know, through Amazon. Uh, lithium. We will yeah. Elon Musk, we will coo whoever we want. Exactly. And so it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, no one, you know, no one's, uh, is free of not being a part of the the, emp- the the empire that we we have, because if you're a consumer, you know you have an iPhone, you have a computer, you're driving a car, you're you're not guilty. You're you know, you're the same as you know the imperial grunts that you know we were, you know. Unfortunately, I forgot who put it to me. It was uh, one of the one of the activists in Hawaii that, you know, being in the military is kind of a glorified study, study abroad program. You know, you have these kids that haven't traveled and the only way they can get out of their areas because of poverty is to join the military, but they end up getting sent just to, uh, maintain, uh, you know, empire. Like for me, right after, uh, my school got sent to be stationed in Hawaii and you know never been to hawaii and then go there you kind of see the disparities of being you know in the tourist areas then you go more inland and see how you know the actual natives live and how much they're suffering it's kind of eye-opening for me it gave me perspective of you know looking into their history what happened to it and then you kind of see well like shit where are the baddies and uh and, you know, for me, I did three tours in Afghanistan. And finally, with my last tour, I finally decided to get out because I just kept on seeing how the war is being mismanaged. We're not really there to help out the people, you know, partnering up with warlords that are abusing children. And it's just it's like, I'm not going to die for this shit. And so it's just um, hearing more stories from um, more service members like that, I think would help out. Um, for the youth to be able to kind of get more perspective of it. And um, this yeah, it's combating the narrative because, who is it, a year or two ago, I used to watch the, the Culture Club a lot, or the Breakfast Club. And then it was one episode where they started promoting um, U.S. Army military uh, recruitment there. And I was like, ah, this is bullshit that they're doing. It. Especially, it was a couple months ago, prior to that episode, where... Uh, uh, a black uh, service member was killed in Texas while he was having a mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, this is all like in the heels of, you know, well, the murder of George Floyd. You kind of start hearing all these stories of different uh, service members, ex-service members being killed by the cops. So it, it kind of uh, uh, brings out the experiences that I had in the military of dealing with white supremacists in the military you know, I I never heard anti-Semitic uh, jokes until I joined the Marine Corps, and you know that, that was kind of in retrospect you kind of see a lot of the the ingrained Nazism, unfortunately, that's within a lot of these institutions that we have. So it's just uh, try to get the stories out and try to get the rep- retrospective of a lot of these uh, service members that uh, had gone through the same experiences to be able to change people's perspective. I think that's needed. Yeah, no, and this is something that, like, uh, you know, I, was, I was talking about the other day, and um, something I've had the opportunity a little bit to do of speaking with, you know, a high school class or uh, high school classes 
um, <laughs> about, you know, why not to join the military? And, you know, and I, and I think that that's, that, that, that could be, you know, something more, like it should be more developed, um, and, and organized, um, and maybe possibly like partnering up with like teachers unions and stuff like that. Um, as far as, yeah, just having the opportunity of like, well, there's recruiters in your school, you know, and I'm a veteran. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, would you mind if I, you know, talk about, uh, my experience, you know, and, and I mean, shit, I'd be willing to jump into my blues uh, if if I can deliver the message. Um, uh, but maybe not. It looks so good in my blues. Uh, no, but uh, but the thing is that, that that conversation is important. You know, Vanessa Guillen, that's important. For there's it's you know, and and she is just the most famous name of thousands, tens of thousands. You know. It hundreds of thousands probably by now of 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 uh, people, I mean of women. But now, like the thing is too is that uh, rape is not something only subjected to uh, to, to to women in the in the military, um, the LGBTQ community, especially trans folks in the military are are, are more often attacked sexually attacked uh than 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 any other type uh any other group um but this is what that's military culture you know honor courage commitment is what they put on the logo rape pillage murder is the actual culture um and the thing that it, it, for me you know and, and doc i don't know if you've ever struggled with this is that 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 that, that contradiction of of that, of just bloodthirsty, you know, nationalism, uh, with, with that's, that's juxtaposed with this type of like one for all mentality. Um, because for me, I started to actually internalize that one for all. And it made me realize, you know, it made me, but actually mean all. Um, and, 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 and that's something that, yeah, you know, you got someone like Smedley Butler, we talk about often. Uh, there's the ability there to have those lessons learned. And I mean, Doc, you're talking about like your experiences deploying and, you know, same thing, you know, like I, I, there's this lady in the Philippines that like the look that she gave me, I cannot forget the face. <laughs> um, and it's not that anybody else, no one else looked at, you know, me in a myriad of different countries uh and and my marines and said what the fuck are you doing here it's just this 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 one lady in the philippines the look it it, it made me ask what the fuck am i doing here <laughs> you know um but yeah and those experiences uh they got to be shared um you know and shout out to people like like mike preisner <laughs> um uh who who are really you know sharing in a much more prolific way uh than i've been able to um i don't know i feel like i'm rambling now but um but yeah oh doc, doc did you have anything else i know Mark. yeah no, no, definitely you're, you're hitting a key point uh you know just that that look from people that you know normally everywhere else you know here in the states you you get praise for your you know your military service or, or whatnot but then when you go abroad 
to a place where they don't want you there. You kind of have to self-reflect in a way. Or, you know, you see the contradictions. But, like, you know, one key, you know, example would be, you know, Pat Tillman. Every year they want to, mm-hmm. you know, roll him out as the patron, you know, the saint of, you know, military surface and football. But, you know, look into his story and see why they killed him and covered up his, you know, his murder. And it's just, uh, there's countless stories like that within the military where if you don't toe the line and if you're, you know, out in the shit, they'll, they'll take you out. Unfortunately, that's, that's the culture. If you're not going to, um, fall in line that you're a liability and then accidents can happen. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, in a war uh, zone, everybody doesn't have to come home. Yeah. So for me, for my experience, like instead of, you know, being, being one with my my platoon that you know I'm I'm the primary health care giver of these guys, but because they're fucking Nazis, I felt more comfortable hanging out with the Afghans. I so I built more camaraderie with you know with the Afghans, and um, that's why with the whole you know ending of the war and the treatment of what the Afghan ref, uh, refugees are getting now that they're you know the view that we're able to come here in the United States. Uh, you know, being left in hotels with no help and they're starving, they're starving in the hotel rooms. And, they, you know, there's interviews where they're saying that, you know, it was better being in the, in the camps, being locked down. At least they were getting fed in there. So it's just kind of, uh, sad that, uh, you know, not just we do that to our own citizens, but, you know, we feed this lie to other people all around the world. And when they get here, they definitely wake up to a rude awakening. So it's just, uh, hopefully it changes, but, uh, unfortunately I don't really, <laughs> I, I don't really foresee that happening and, you know, it's let Babylon burn, it's burning and, and unfortunately they're not, they're not wanting to do anything. Like earlier you mentioned about, you know, using the military force for, uh, you know, to address climate change, but you have, you know, well, the recent, uh, I think bill that they just bypassed, uh, bipartisanship to uh, not allow the president to use um, you know executive order or to deem it uh, uh, an emergency for to address climate change you know Mark Kelly who you know gets touted as you know being bipartisanship for his military service or whatnot voted with the Republicans for it so you kind of see where in the end you know the corporatists are the ones that really truly rule um, here and you know, they they don't care as long as they're making money. You know, they don't care that they're leading us to our collective doom. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, I think too, like really, um, <laughs> that it's the bosses. You know, um, <laughs> that's that the, the issue is um, there is no there's no democracy here, um, and. Uh, and that's the thing. It's like you're right. It's like if 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 a people could have a good understanding of uh, what's happening in our world, you know, um, and then you know we get to decide what is best for us. Um, the decision is a whole lot easier. Uh, but that's like our our world is you know, at least you know seemingly constructed in such a way. Um, that that's you know those types of decisions aren't able to come to you know and just talking like talking about like something like the climate crisis 
said it's going to destroy, you know, humans' ability to survive on this planet, you know, along with millions of other species. That, you know, and it's here, and it's here now. Um, and I think people are are realizing, oh wow, it's 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 climate change is now. The climate crisis is now. Um, I mean, it's scary. Is like this is. Uh, <laughs> This is the, 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 the easy times, right? Like people, when people say this is the hottest year in the past 100 years, the, the, the correct response is it's also the coldest year for the next 100 years. And that's a scary thought, you know, uh, but that's what we're up against, you know. Um, and uh, I don't know. I feel like, yeah. <laughs> I got it trailed off, but Doc, if it's cool if I move over to Marge, because uh, they've been waiting for a bit. Um, but thank you for calling in, and I'm sorry I kind of trailed off there. But um, all right, Marge, hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Well, I've got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> um, I'm a former Marine, and Rah. I served. Um, Fortunately, during peacetime in the 80s, early 80s, and um, I was in a CH-53 deployable squadron, was fortunate to go to Okinawa, Japan, and South Korea, team spirit exercise, and um, did have an adventure. And just talking about the military, um, a Marine Corps recruiter showed up here a couple of months ago, scared the living hell out of me trying to convince my son to join the military when he had all these, you know, he's 4.0, had all these scholarships going to college. And he, he comes in and says, hey, they can help me pay for college. And that's, that's what I, that's the reason why I joined was to help pay for college. But uh, one thing people don't tell you is when you join the military is that they own you. And when I say own you, you have to do what they tell you to do no matter what and um it can be a living hell but um at the same time i did have the camaraderie um i did have uh i mean we had each other's backs so that was good and um one of the things i've thought since then was i think everyone should go through the military just so people stop their damn whining and suck it up and work for a living. <laughs> Excuse my um, bluntness. But um, I have since learned a lot in these years. And the one thing I wanted to start off with, which listening to this conversation, and very few people have found out know about this, and other than God showing me how this came about, but do, are you aware of the Smith Munt? Act that was passed in 2012. Uh, what does it do? I don't. Not off the top of my head, though. It um, was. Uh, it became law. This was during the Obama administration that our government could infiltrate media coverage on foreign soils on what they reported was going on to the United States. Basically, they could make up any story they wanted to about what the United States was doing, good, bad, indifferent. Whatever narrative they wanted the government to portray the United States as, they could do that. Does that sound familiar? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just like looking it up right now and looking into it, but um, yeah, no, uh, not heard. Um, but go ahead. Okay. Well, one may think, well, that's not so bad. But what happened is right before it was passed into law, Obama changed it and made it add an addendum to it that it was okay for the U.S. government to work with our media and lie to our own citizens. Okay, so yeah, there there are there were CIA employees working at all the ABC, CBS, Fox News, all of them have government employees working at these institutions. And this still goes on today. And um, when uh, Trump won in 2016, before Obama left, he awarded $2 billion to the CIA, our taxpayer money, to be used to run propaganda against Trump and to use any narrative they could to destroy him. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, but uh, I don't think you needed $2 billion to, to destroy Trump. What about lying? I mean, yeah, Obama's a liar. Um, <laughs> it's funny, though, that Trump is as well. Well, the thing is, is that we can't trust anything. That Oh, that I think that there. we can trust. No, we can we can trust a lot. I think it's it's. I think it's disingenuous to say that we can't trust anything. You know, um, you know. I guess like and I guess these like I, I trust that the climate crisis is happening. I trust that you know the United I, States military is largely used for imperialism and the spreading of uh, U.S. hegemony. You know, I think that it's you know, it's largely all... in the United States that uh, scarcity is a false narrative um, and that, uh, you know, the, the ability of the people to provide for itself is largely wasted. I think these are things that, you know, we could trust and know. But in the, in the, in the global scheme of things, there's a narrative to, um, when it came to the climate control thing, I want to, to, to say that I've researched that and I have gone through extreme measures to find out about it. And it's a lie. Well, see, and here's the thing is, 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 is Marge is that when let's say, you know, uh, let's say you go to the dentist, right. And, yeah. you know, you go to the dentist, you trust, that the person working on your teeth knows what they're doing, right? Right, right. Do you do you know anything about dentist dentistry? Nope. But you trust you that when you go into a dentist office, the dentist is a professional, knows what they're doing, and can you know do whatever procedure you need. Yeah, you you, you that sure. happens. Sure, sure. Um, now this this type of relationship where we trust in a professional that could be a complete stranger, right? Right. right. And I mean, I remember having a, a dentist when I was a kid that, you know, I had him for a few years, Dr. Brown, great guy, got to know him after a while. But at first, that is a very strange, that is a stranger relationship that you put in the trust of a professional. Sure. And at that point, too, you don't learn that profession. You don't 
gain the same knowledge that professional performs their duty and that's it and that's all okay they're, per they're, per they're performing a service indeed now when it comes to the climate crisis yeah there are professionals yep there are people who study there yep. are people who research right and those are the people that like the dentist i trust to give accurate information and the thing is too is that it's not just the giving of the accurate information it's that we can now look at our material world look up and these are things that are not hard to find right these are news stories that you will find on almost any and all publications news channels whatever and you could if you know people in these locations they can tell you about it because I, this happens with me. The wildfires that are happening on the West Coast. And oh, I know so much about those wildfires. You don't even want to know about what's really going on there. So you think, I, 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 guess, I guess I'm curious then, what would you say is the cause of the increase of, the, of wildfires in the West matching with the increases of drought and water scarcity. What do you, I guess. You, you have no idea the global scale of what's going on with the control of things. And I, I'm not even going to begin to mention it because um, if you go back to DARPA, go back to DARPA, go back to, you know what paperclip is? Yeah, no, and, 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 and Marge, I'm, 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 I'm going to have to kind of, call it there um <laughs> but uh but but no I, I would say marge if you're still listening um remember right the dentist the stranger that you can trust the professional who has studied and learned and that you can trust right there are people like that who study who learn who are professionals when it comes to gaining and analyzing the information about climate, the climate crisis. This has been something that's been done for decades. Um, and so if <laughs> I would say, trust the professionals. Um, but, uh, all right. <laughs> I think on that note, um, I'm going to call it, uh, or you know, coming up on three hours here and well, you know, it's been a long day. <laughs> so I hope you all have a good rest of the <laughs> rest of the night. And um yeah, yeah, have a good one.